got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be there uh, kind of off and on through the service this morning. We are four weeks away from the defining moment, really, of our faith, of, of religion as we know it. Uh, we are four weeks away, really, from the defining moment of all of history, uh, the history of the world. There's one thing that sets Christianity apart from any other world religion, sets us apart from any other um, religious denominations or anything else that they call themselves a religion. The one thing sets us apart. It is not the creation of the world. It is not um, the miracles of Jesus. It is not even the death of Jesus. It's not the Passover, although we are just a few weeks away from what they celebrated as the Passover. Uh, the, it's not the death of Jesus because, listen, there's hundreds of religious leaders that have died for their cause, but only one of them has come back to life. Nobody else in the history of the world can say that they have the power to do that except for Jesus. The resurrection is the defining moment of a Christian's faith. If, without that, nothing else matters. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the birthday of Jesus, right? He came to the world to, to save us, to, to pay the price for our sin, to live among us. That's something that we, that we celebrate and we talk about a lot in church circles, right? Christmas is so important. And then we celebrate Easter. We, we acknowledge and we give... Um, a lot of respect and a lot of solitude, and we, we kind of come into Good Friday because of what it meant for us. Good Friday is the day that Jesus hung on the cross for our sin, that he died. That he, that, let me go say that again, that he died. There are some people that don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But Jesus died on a cross for us on a Friday. But we celebrate Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection. It is the single most important thing that we have as Christians. And um, Paul gives us kind of our theme verse. If you have, uh, I think it's on the screen. TJ, can you put that on the back screen for us too? First Corinthians chapter 15 says this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And a lot of you would read that verse and just read a few sentences out of it and say, your preaching is useless, Matt. I get it. We all understand that. We're all on the same page. That's not what I'm saying. Without the resurrection, nothing else matters. Without the resurrection, your faith is useless. Everything that we do here is useless. We celebrate Easter, not because a bunny comes and drops little eggs all over our backyard, which is really trespassing and loitering and littering. And then we, what we do, we make our kids go out and pick it all up because we don't, like, we don't celebrate for that. We celebrate because the Son of God came and He paid the ultimate price for our sin, for the sin that we carry, the sin that we commit. He who did not know sin bore the sin of many for us. And then on the third day came back to life again. Over the next few weeks we're going to start looking at what it means to be risen and, and how Jesus changed the game 
when he came back to life. We're going to follow along through a book, which I, I, many of you may have already read. I, I encourage you to read it. Uh, a man named Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ, uh, where he, as a journalist and a atheist, set out to disprove Christianity. He set out to prove that Jesus was not the Son of God, and therefore God does not exist. And through his interviews and his own personal study, and through his uh, research that he formed, he became a believer. Because he could not deny the fact and the truth of what the Bible says, that Jesus is who he says he was. He did what he said he did. And he came to incredible knowledge of Jesus through his own effort to try to disprove him. On April the 7th of this next month, um, there's going to be a, a movie that's being uh, released called The Case for Christ. It follows this journey through the book. I can't vouch for the movie because I've not seen it. Okay, I can't, I can't say. everybody. It's the same people who put out the God's Not Dead movies. You know, They did a couple of those. Um, and so I'm sure it's going to be good, but I can't say it's going to be good. But I can say the book is good because I've read it like three times. And if you know me, I'm not a reader. Like I, I've said for years, I'm trying to become a reader. I'm trying to become a reader because I really am trying but this book, man, I, I sat down with it a few years ago, and I just, I just ate it up. I, I could not put it down because it was so intriguing, the proof of, of God and Jesus and what he said and how it's all true. And so I encourage you, if you don't have a copy of the book, read it. Don't, don't read it until I get through preaching through it, or you're going to know what I'm going to talk about, right? And so some of the things that I'm going to say over the next few weeks are going to be from the book. I wish it was from my own research, but I was smart enough to let somebody else do it for me, okay? And so I'm going to say some things that are his. I'm going to say a lot of things that are mine. And I believe that we're going to be able to walk through some of these um, conclusions and some of these incredible truths and see some really... Uh, amazing things come to play. I'm not going to preach the book. I'm not going to be like chapter 1. This is what he talks about, chapter 2. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to kind of try to summarize a little bit of the thought that he had and a little bit of the research that he proved and some of the things that I thought, wow, this is incredible. This is, this is put together so well. Because here's, here's what I've got on the screen. There are three different, I think I put them up as aspects of faith. There are three different elements of faith. And, and we all connect to faith through maybe a combination of these three. The first one I have up there is the spiritual element of faith, right? We all have to connect with faith through the spiritual element. Without that, we, really, we don't really understand faith, right? The Bible talks about how Jesus draws us into himself, and he stands at the door, and he knocks, and he wants to be a part of our life. That's a spiritual element of faith. We have to connect on that level. That's the very first and most important one. And then some of us will begin to divide a little bit. And this is all just my opinion, but then the second one is an emotional element of faith. A lot of us can say, I know that God is real because I can just feel Him as a part of who I am. I know that He can speak to me. I know when I'm in His presence, there's just this emotional draw to Jesus. And, and we, can, we can connect on that level. We can go, I, I, I get it. I, I can feel that. I can, I, it's just this thing that's in my gut that's bigger than who I am. And then some of us who are just a little, wired just a little bit differently, we need a logical, or I thought I put an intellectual element of faith. There's a, there's a part of this where we can just kind of come to some conclusions. We go, okay, this all makes sense. 
I can put these things together. And even the things that we can't make sense of, we still have it as an element of faith. And so we can go, I don't have to understand this part, but these parts I can kind of put in order. I can kind of begin to logically put this together. And so some of us are emotional people. I'm an emotional person. I just am. But there's a part of me, there's a vein in me that is surprisingly very intellectual. Okay, Some of you are like, whatever, right? Because some of you right now, men, are going, I'm not emotional, so I just must be very intellectual, honey. That's just how I work. And your wives are just shaking their heads going, no, it's not true. But there is a part of us, some of us, who are very, very intellectual, very logical. We need to see things kind of play out. And, and honestly, the majority of what we do in church and the majority of what we talk about in church circles is more on the emotional side. We're talking about feeling the presence of God and knowing that He's here and just having this experience with Him. And rarely do we lay out some real logical and intellectual thoughts. Well, over the next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to lay out some, some logical and some intellectual things. I need you to stay with me, okay? I, I told TJ, he came into my office, I told you we were in there praying and and I said, man, there's just a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that I'm going to throw at them this morning, kind of as an overview as we begin this topic, as we begin to look at this idea of risen. And I don't want them to get lost in the details that I'm going to give. I want them to get lost in, in what's most important this morning. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to look at, first of all, the Gospels. Uh, we're going to look at are, are the Gospels, are, are the account that we have of Jesus, the things that are, that are really first-hand witness of Jesus, are they true? We're going to look at the person of Jesus. We're going to look at the claims that he made. I'm telling you, next week is going to be incredible. We're going to kind of draw some parallels from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the prophecy of Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. We're going to look at some really incredible things next week. And then the third week, we're going to look at the crucifixion. We're going to look at what really happened, how it really went down. Did he really die? There's some people that believe in something called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus just passed out on the cross, that he could not handle the pain, the, the pain and the anxiety of all the things that were coming on him at that moment. He passed out. They took him off the cross. They put him in the tomb, and three days later, he just woke up. He was essentially in a deep sleep. And I'm here to say, and we we're going to talk about it on the third week, that that is not true, that Jesus died. He was dead. And he came back to life. And the last week, Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the resurrection and what the resurrection means for us and how that really applies to our life even now, 2,000 years later, where, where that really is, is the, still the main theme of the church. And without the resurrection, nothing else really matters. So... As we dive into the Gospels, okay, we've got to get right into who and what and how they say. But let's look at our, our passage this morning. I don't have it on the screen. I want everybody in their Bible. I want everybody in their Word. You should be taking a lot of notes over the next few weeks. So if you have a, a bulletin, there should be a couple of blank pages in there for you to take notes. I encourage you to do that, okay? So we're at Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 6 is kind of going to be our passage for today. We're going to look at this a couple of different times. And it's really, really important because it's written as a first-hand account in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 says this, After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the, Mary, the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. This is of paramount importance to us as we look at the resurrection of Christ. This is, a, this is an account written in the book of Matthew of what happened the Sunday when Mary and Mary showed up to see and to anoint and to try to embalm, essentially, Jesus. He is not here. He is risen. So, it begs the question of how do we know that this is truth? How do we know that what the Bible says is true? We all, as Christians, as churchgoers, as good Southern Baptists, we all can say that the Bible is true, right? Thomas Jefferson went through his Bible, and he marked out all the things that he didn't like about it. It's called the Jefferson Bible. And the Jefferson Bible is very, very short, because there's things in there he would just mark out. He didn't like that part, or it didn't make sense to him. And he'd only go through the things that made sense to him. And we don't do that. You, you don't, let me say that, don't do that, right? Don't do that. Because the whole thing is true and accurate and correct. And we all grow up and we go through VBS and we go through children's church and we even go to church camp a couple of times where if you're like me, the boys weren't even allowed to swim with the girls because they, you know, they might touch each other. And, and we learn all these crazy things and we just get to be where we're in our 30s and 40s and 50s and we just go, I mean, yeah, it's true, right? I mean, I've always heard that it's true. How do you know? How do you know that what's recorded in Scripture is actual truth? So we first have to figure out who the Gospels are. Hopefully you understand that. If you, if you don't know the Gospels, the word for the Gospels is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The actual word Gospel means good news, right? We all understand that. And that when we say we share the Gospel, we are sharing the good news of Jesus. We're sharing about what He did. So we named... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, because they tell us everything that we have to know about Jesus is recorded for us in the Gospels. Firsthand, let me rephrase that. Everything we have firsthand account of Jesus is recorded for us in the Gospel. Matthew, who was, uh, most people go, well, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they must have been the disciples, right? Wrong. Matthew was a disciple. Matthew was sometimes called... Um, he was known as Levi. He was the tax collector. Remember, Jesus had this incredible moment with him while he was standing at his tax collecting booth, and Jesus came up and he said, follow me. And Matthew, a.k.a. Levi, stood up, and he left everything, and he followed after Jesus. Mark was a, also known as John Mark. He was a companion of Peter's. He was not a disciple. He was a good friend of Peter. He traveled with Peter. And he got first-hand account from Peter and wrote it down for us. Luke was Paul's physician. He was a doctor. Dr. Luke, if you read through the, the Gospel of Luke, you read, you read some, a lot of detail and a lot of uh, like real in-depth things that some, some of the other Gospels don't mention because Mark was a detailed person. I, I, I laugh all the time because we got kids and kids get sick and I call Hank. And so I, I call Hank, and I'll say, hey, this is what's going on, and there's this pause, right? And if you know Hank, you know that that pause means he's rolling through like the Rolodex of issues that could be wrong with my kids and all the other issues that have been wrong with my kids. And he just takes a minute, and he goes, I think it's probably this. 
Like, my mind doesn't work like that. I'd go, oh, man, your kid's dying. I don't know what's wrong with them, right? Because I don't think like that. But Mark was a doctor. He thought like that. He kind of he processed things. Or Luke was a doctor. He thought like that. He processed things like that. And John, John who wrote his own gospel, he was a disciple John. He was James and John, the brothers, the sons of thunder. Like, I love John because he's just like, he was just impetuous and he was crazy and he wrote his own book and he called himself the favorite disciple in his own book because who wouldn't do that, right? Like, if I was writing the gospel, I'd be like, I was Jesus' favorite. We and I hung out all the time. That's what John did. And he writes a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he wrote a little after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he wrote this book and it was just an incredible um, account. He talks about the Word of God. John, John focuses a lot on the Word of God about Jesus was the Word. Remember, he starts it off as in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Remember, he, he pulls all those things together. And these four books, these four little books give us all the firsthand information that we have about Jesus. They wrote down as much as they could. And if you read through them, you're going to see some differences. You're going to see some similarities. You're going to see the same story told in a couple of different ways. Because these are four different men writing their four different perspectives about the same events that happened. And so you have to remember that, like, that maybe, maybe Mark says it this way and Luke says it this way, but it's pretty much the same story. It's the same things happening. And they're writing down these things from different perspectives. And yes, maybe there's times in there where it looks like they're, they disagree, but really they don't. And if we, oh, if we had time, I could get into the... Remember when Jesus... Uh, sent the demon into the pigs, and they ran off the cliff into the Sea of Galilee. You remember that story? If you read one account, it says this happened in Gendera, and the other one says it happened in Gersha. And they're going, how can that be? It's two different towns. One, town's, one of them's a town, the other one's a province. But the problem is, is that town's nowhere close to the Sea of Galilee. But what has happened over the last hundred years is that archaeology has discovered a town called Gersha, that's right next to the Sea of Galilee that when you spell it in Hebrew probably has a G sound in it and it sounds just like Gersha and it's in the province of Gadara. And you go, whoa, it makes sense. All this stuff puts together and we go, okay, I get it. I can, I can begin to logically put some of this stuff in order. You read through Mark and Mark doesn't have the birth story in it. And a lot of people freak out because they go, well, Matthew and Luke have an incredibly detailed story of the birth account. And John kind of starts with John the, uh, the John the Baptist story and kind of picks up Jesus from baptism on. What about Mark? Why doesn't Mark have a birth story in it? Well, if you read the book of Mark, the book of Mark spends almost half of his book recording the events from the week before to after the resurrection, the week before the crucifixion to after the resurrection. Why? Because in ancient texts, you wrote about what was most important. And Mark says, without this, nothing else matters. Yeah, he hits on some of the, the miracles of Jesus, and he hits on other the different things they taught. But he said, the most important thing that happened with Jesus is the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, because I'm going to write the majority of my book on that. And so we see all these little different similarities, and we kind of start to say, okay, why are these guys... Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why didn't Peter write an apostle? Why didn't, why didn't Apostle Peter write a book? He was the, he was the impetuous one, right? He was, the, he was the one that, like, when we get to heaven, we just want to hang out with Peter because he's going to say something that's probably inappropriate. He's going to do something that he probably shouldn't do, and he's going to snicker and go, let's just not tell Jesus about that, right? Because he was that kind of a guy. That would be a, that would be a book that I want to read, 
Let's read through Peter's account. Let's read through uh, Bartholomew's account. We never even talk about him. What about Thomas, doubting Thomas? Wouldn't he have an incredible perspective on Jesus? What about, what about the good Judas? Remember him? There was two, the good Judas. And then later, sometimes he's referred to as Thaddeus, because if your name was Judas, wouldn't you want to change it to Thaddeus? And if you're going to change your name, why not change it to something cool like Thaddeus? And so we have all these different accounts. Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, I believe that Paul kind of gives us an answer to the question. In 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to read this. You guys know this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were a noble birth. But God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. See, what I love about the Gospels and that the fact that they have maintained their integrity through the years is that these are the most unassuming men to write the account of Jesus. Matthew was hated. He was a tax collector. He was hated. John wanted to be at the right hand of Jesus. Even his own friends kind of got mad at him. Luke and Mark were kind of, they were kind of on the, on, they were still in the circle, but they were kind of on the outer ring of the circle. And so they think, why, why have all this through these men? But the realization is it's not about these men. It's about God and the story of God. And so they wrote down what they knew. They wrote down what they experienced and what they saw and what they witnessed. And they said, this is what happened. This is not about us. I love that in none of the books outside of John, because John says I'm the favorite, but outside of any of the other any of the Gospels, none of them really talk about themselves. Because it's not about them. We write a book right now, and we're going to give at least an introduction about who I am and what I've done and why I have the credentials to write this book. And they didn't do that because it's not about them. It was about the bigger story that they were telling. So, we understand who these four guys are now. Can we trust them? Can we, can we really trust their account of what has happened? We read this story in Matthew chapter 28 and about the Sabbath and, and Mary and Mary running to the tomb and, and the angels showing up. Can, can we really trust that that really happened? Because really, didn't they write this like a long time after it all went down? If you read through your Bible, if you have a study Bible, if you have a good study Bible, they'll have little columns in it that talk about when, um, when the Gospels were written. written. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was written in the 80s, not the 1980s. As though Brody thinks that when I was, Dad, you were born in the 70s? Oh my gosh, that was so long ago. This was the 80s, like the 0080s, right? The 0080s. This is not the 19 or the 18 or 1780s. This is in the 80s, AD, 80s. Matthew was written. Luke was written in about the same time around the 80s. Mark was in the 70s. John was in the 90s. See, John was a little bit later. And so we have this kind of common understanding, 70s, 80s, 90s, that this was all written down. And we go, well, I mean, that's a pretty long time after Jesus, right? If we start and think that Jesus was probably crucified around 30, A.D. 30, 
then we've got 60 years. There's a lot of, there's a lot of folklore that can kind of be brought up in 60 years, right? There's a lot of um, imagination that can be put to the situation in that 60 years. But when we look at, at history, we realize very quickly that 60 years is pretty quick. We, let's compare it with this. Alexander the Great. We all understand, remember who he was from history, hopefully. Alexander the Great, we have two biographies written about Alexander the Great, written by this guy named Aaron and Plutriarch, okay? They were written 400 years after Alexander the Great died in 322 B.C. 400 years, and we count everything that they wrote about Alexander the Great as extremely historically accurate. 400 years compared to 60 of the disciples, of the apostles. And, and we go, okay, let's take this even a, a step further, okay? So I read through the book of Acts. And if you read through the book of Acts, you realize the book of Acts ends pretty abruptly, just kind of stops. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Um, some things have been happening. And then we just get to the end of the book. And we don't know what happened to Paul. We don't figure that out in Acts. Uh, and the reason why we don't figure it out is because we realize that Acts concluded and was written before Paul was put to death, okay? Paul's put to death around A.D. 62. A.D. 62. So we've got Mark, oh, we've got Luke who wrote the book of Acts, right? We understand that. Luke wrote Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And Acts was second. And so if we go backwards, then we realize he had to write the book of Luke first, if you wrote the book of Luke first, what we realize is when we read Luke, it's got elements of Mark in it. So that means Mark was written before Luke, written before Acts. And so if we give them just a few years for each one of those books to be written, then we realize that Mark is written in the late 50s, which is 25 years after Jesus died. 25 years is almost nothing in the in historical context, this is like this is this is a newspaper. This is this is quick, and we see okay. They wrote it down within twenty, maybe twenty to twenty-five years after Jesus died. That we have written proof of the gospel accounts being written down. This is this is incredibly fast. Now we compare that twenty to twenty-five years to Alexander the Great. 400 years, we go, this is, this is pretty quick. There's not a lot of room for folklore to be kind of invented and kind of drawn out of this. This is probably pretty historically accurate. And here's what's really important about that, is that if they were written so close to the time of Jesus' death, then they weren't just written and distributed to church people. There were people who could have combated the story of the apostles and said, no, that didn't happen. You need to take that out. It didn't happen like that. He didn't say that. That's not true. And so we have this incredible account of Jesus written within 20 to 30 years after his death where people who were alive when Jesus was alive, who maybe not even believed in what he said he was going to do, could sit back and go, no, that's not right. You need to take that out. That's not right. And so we have a kind of historical document that has stood the test of other eyewitnesses, of critique from firsthand critics. 
that could have said, no, no, we don't, we don't necessarily believe that at all. So, we understand that, that we've got the Gospels. We understand that they were written fairly close to the time after Jesus' death. But is there anything else? Is there any other written document that talks about Jesus in this kind of context before the Gospels? Many of you probably don't even know this. You've been in church your whole life. I'm going I'm to blow your mind right now. Paul's letters, I'm going to say almost all, because there's one that maybe is a little shady on what time it was written. Almost all of Paul's letters were written before the Gospels. We read Paul's letters and we think he's referencing back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's not. They weren't even written down yet. Paul starts writing in the 40s and 50s. He starts writing the church at Philippi and the church at Corinth and the church at Ephesus. He writes all those churches right after he gets saved. He starts writing all these things down and starts distributing these letters. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is incredible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to trace some timeline here, and I promise you you're going to go, First 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. This is an incredibly important passage of Scripture that most people don't even know about. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says this. For what I received I passed on to you as first importance. And you should have a colon there. Which means he is going to state something that he has been given. What I received I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, this is an early church creed. Early church creed is an oral tradition that has finally been written down and passed about. And this tells us three incredible things. One, that it's written and it's widely used. What I received, I passed on to you as first importance. This is super important. You need to know this. Number two, that the scriptures being referenced here, remember I just told you that Paul's letters were written before the gospel. He's talking about Old Testament scripture. Paul is already starting to use some biblical hermeneutics, if I can use a big church word, and pulling prophecy of the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus. That he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament scripture. And he says, all these Old Testament prophecies are all pointing to Jesus. We're going to talk about this next week. You don't want to miss next week. It's going to be really, really good. And the third thing he says, this lists off a specific people that Jesus encountered after his resurrection. Remember it says that he appeared to Peter and the, the, the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Some of them who are still alive. He appeared to James, his brother, which is an incredible moment. We've talked about that in here. 
and then to the apostles, the men who are, who are taking this message of Jesus and pushing it through the world. He lists off very important people who could have stood up and said, he didn't show himself to me. I, I never saw him. I never, I never experienced that Jesus after he died. Now, here's what's incredible. Okay, Jesus' crucifixion, AD 30, around. Paul's conversion happens around AD 32. Remember the road to the Damascus, and he encounters Christ, and he falls down, he's blinded, and he comes back, and who persecuted Christians now becomes the chief of, of church planters. And so we have Jesus crucified in 30, we have Paul's um, conversion in 32, and then we read in about 35 is when Paul finally goes back to Jerusalem and appears before the apostles. In AD 35, he shows himself to Jerusalem. Remember, there's this incredible encounter in the book of Acts where he comes in and he sees James, Jesus' brother, who, if you read through the Gospels, did not believe Jesus to be Jesus. He believed Jesus to be his brother, but he did not believe him to be the Messiah. And now, just five years after Jesus' death, James is the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. He's essentially the president of Christianity right now. He had this incredible moment. It all points back, and gosh, if we had time to get to it, when Jesus appeared to James. Changed everything. And so now we have Jesus' crucifixion, Paul's conversion, and now in 35, we have Paul finally showing up to Jerusalem to tell them this stuff. What does he reference? He says, sometime between 32 and 35, Paul was given this creed, this this prayer, this Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. He was given this. It was already written down and circulating through all the believers, through all of the province, through all of the nations. And, and people are starting to see this written down firsthand right in front of them within three years of Jesus' death. Listen, church, we've gone from 400 years with Alexander the Great to 60 years to really closer to about 25 to 30 years, and now we're down to three years. From Jesus' death, we have things that are written down that are being passed out and distributed, and nobody is arguing with them. Why? Because it's truth. And you can't argue with truth. You can't corroborate or, or combat truth. When people are standing up saying, no, I can, I can attest to this. This is what happened. I can attest to this part. This is what happened. I can say this is real because this is what happened. And so we go, okay, man, I got, we got the dates. We understand that it was written close to Jesus. We understand who the disciples were. But why just those four? Why didn't other books get put into the Bible? Why didn't other accounts, because there's other ones written down. If you do any kind of search, you can find uh, apostles of other, written work of other apostles. Why didn't they get in? Well, there's three criteria for the canon of the New Testament, okay? Let me just give you a little information. Number one is it has to have apostolic authority, which means it has to be written by a person who was either an apostle or who was like 
we talked about with Luke and with Mark, a very close friend of an apostle who would have gotten their information from one. It has to, have a, has to be kind of under the authority of the rule of faith. It kind of has to agree with everything else. If one of them is written and it just talks about how Jesus came down on a spaceship and he built the pyramids and Stonehenge, it's probably not going to make it in the Bible, right? Because it's got to kind of cohere with everything else. And the third part of it is it has to be accepted by the early church. If the early church said that's not true, then we're going to say that's not true. So when the, when the biblical people are putting the Bible together and the canon of the Bible together, they had kind of those three elements. Let's give you an example because it makes sense when we we real, real things. Gospel of Thomas. And we talked about why wouldn't Thomas write one? Well, because he did. In the Gospel of Thomas, there's 114 sayings that are directly connected to Jesus. 114 things that are quoted, Jesus said this. And the majority of them are pretty close to what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say. They kind of fall in line with what, what they say. But then, then Thomas just kind of goes, he goes a little, here's what he says. Let Mary go away from us because women are not worthy of life, end quote. Then he goes on to say, this is supposed to be Jesus, Lo, I shall lead her in order to make her a male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a man will enter the kingdom of God. What in the world? Like that's so unbiblical, right? We can read that and go, no, we probably shouldn't accept that. Well, that's what the early church fathers did. They read that and they went, "Mm mm-mm, that's not the Jesus that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The epistle of Barnabas. This is one that I had to read through in school, not just two months ago. The Epistle of Barnabas is, is as crazy as you can read, okay? He takes, he takes Abraham in Genesis, and he says, when Abraham, and this is in, I think, Genesis, oh, this is the last half of Genesis, and, and he says, Abraham took his servants... He took eight, and he took ten, and he took three hundred and circumcised them. And we read that, and I go, okay. And he he takes those numbers, and he goes, the eight, and the ten, and the three hundred. You put all those together, you got 318, and there are so many different scripture references to the number 318, and we're going to use that to, to decipher the Bible. And he tries his best, and it doesn't make any sense at all. And he goes on to write about, when, remember when we got the Mosaic Law and it had all the things that you couldn't eat? All the different animals that you weren't allowed to eat. Remember they weren't allowed to eat pigs? They missed out on bacon and pork chops and all that great stuff that we like now, right? They weren't allowed to eat that. And, and the Epistle of Barnabas, he takes all those things, all those animals that, that are, you're not supposed to eat this, you're not supposed to eat that, and he assimilates them to people. God said do not eat pigs because the pig is an adulterer. And you're not supposed to have anything to do with adulterers. And everybody's going, where did, where did he get that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. There's no cohesion in these outside epistles about Jesus. Now, there are things, and we don't have time to get into them. There are things that are written that are secular, that are worldly accounts, historical accounts that have a lot of information about Jesus in them. They talk about Pontius Pilate and how he crucified a man because of his own jealousy toward him. And they're talking about Jesus. There's historical record about um, 
and a, and a, a solar eclipse and an earthquake happening on this day that was around A.D. 30. And we can all go back and go, well, you know, when Jesus died and he gave up his spirit, said that the, sun, the, the daytime came like night, and there was a violent earthquake, and the curtain and the veil and the temple shook and split from top to bottom. We go, this is, this is talking about exactly what the Bible talks about. We can parallel these things together. And so we have all that, and like this Barnabas epistle and this Thomas epistle, this is all written like three or 400 years after Jesus had already died. And so there's no, there's, no, there's no connectivity back to what we have and what we hold true to. Now, we could talk about archaeology. We could talk about how science and archaeologists have discovered just about everything that the New Testament says is there is there. If they say there's a town there or a well there or a mountain there, you can go and you can say, well, there's the town, there's the well, there's the mountain. You can pretty much prove just about everything that's written in Scripture. You can even go back to Old Testament and prove the same places and the same people existed and where they were. We compare that, okay, with... Um, let's compare that with the Book of Mormon, okay? The Book of Mormon, written by John Smith, the, the author who, who, who is kind of the founding father of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormon religion, okay? He said the Book of Mormon is the most true book ever written in history. But the problem is, is when you, when you go and, and in the book, in the Case for Christ book, he, he, he asked some people who worked for the Smithsonian, the Smithsonian Institute, and said, is there anything that's written in the Book of Mormon, any places, people, whatever, whatever? And they, said, they came back and said, there's absolutely no connectivity evidence of anything in history that can correlate with the Book of Mormon. Which means for us that there's no Book of Mormon, no Book of Mormon city has ever been located. No Book of Mormon person, place, nation, name, artifact, scripture, inscription, anything has ever been found in history. They're just in the book as though they're... But if you read through the New Testament and the Old Testament, every single place you can find. We can talk about how we may not have, and, and some of you may not even know this or even like for me to say this, we don't have a surviving original document of the New Testament. Did you know that? We don't have an original copy of the New Testament. What we have is manuscripts. We have copies of copies. And we have a lot of copies and copies. And that's important because the more you have, the more you can compare them to each other. And any dissimilarities, you can throw them out. And all the similarities you can put together and say, this must be part of what was actually written down. We have five, over 5,000 different Greek New Testament manuscripts. You want to know the runner-up? Homer with the Iliad. Remember that book? You had to read in the seventh grade. You don't remember anything about it. Iliad, Greek manuscripts, 650. New Testament, over 5,000. That's just Greek. We could get into Aramaic and we could get into all these different languages. All in all, there's 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. We've got enough proof and evidence that we can back it up and say, okay, all these things were actually written down and it seems to be pretty real. And so, we have this incredible proof. 
We have all these things that point back to being true and accurate and, and actual descriptions of who Jesus was and what he said. And then, within the last 70 years, we had probably the, the greatest thing that I've read. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Some of you all remember this event. Some of you remember reading about this event, but you don't really know a whole lot about it. About 20 miles outside of Jerusalem in a cave, there were some artifacts, some things, and, and an incredible amount of manuscripts. 68, 80, 68 is when they, they date back to. They date back between 250 B.C. to A.D. 68. Just an incredible like library. Of, and it's all written on papyrus paper. It's real thin. It's an incredible um, find for science. And as they kind of started documenting all these things, they gave them these weird numbers. This one is whatever, whatever. This one is whatever, whatever. And then you read about with something that happens with 4Q521. 4Q521, documented evidence within the Dead Sea Scrolls, says this. It gives this incredible picture. Go to Matthew chapter 11. I gotta, you got to read it to appreciate it. Matthew chapter 11, and then I'm going to, we're almost done. I know I'm going a little long, but gosh, I had a whole lot to tell you. Matthew chapter 11, verse 3. John the Baptist is in prison. He's kind of having a moment in prison because he has been in prison because of his faith in Jesus and what he's telling people about Jesus. And he just has a moment in jail. And he's like, just, I'm going to send my disciples to Jesus, and I need you to ask him a question. I just need you to ask him one incredible question. Chapter 11, verse 3. Ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we be expecting someone else? Notice Jesus' reply. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. Notice the colon. The blind will receive sight. The lame will walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. This is an allusion. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah chapter 35. He's kind of, he's not directly quoting it, but he's alluding back to something that Isaiah wrote in chapter 35. Here's the problem that everybody has had with this verse. The dead will rise is not in Isaiah 35. It's like Jesus just kind of threw it in there. He added it. And everybody for centuries has said, See, see, this is incorrect. Even Jesus, the Son of God who knows the Scripture, did not quote Scripture correctly. It's not in that passage. All those other things he said were, but that little phrase is not. This is where 4Q521 comes in. And this changes the game. 4Q521. It's a non-biblical Hebrew manuscript found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? So we have all these biblical manuscripts. We have some non-biblical manuscripts. We have some historical documents. And one of those non-biblical historical documents has Isaiah 61. 
written, and it says the dead will rise. It has all those other aspects in it, and it includes the phrase, the dead will rise. Here's what's incredible. They've dated this document back 30 years before Jesus was ever even born. And so when Jesus is quoting this in Matthew chapter 11, he's quoting original scripture that he knows to be true and correct. And we read it and we go, well, it's not in ours. It doesn't say it in ours. And he goes, well, it doesn't matter. It's in the original one. Go back. It was written about 60 years ago. You can read it. And until 1940-whatever, we didn't know this. And now we go, he was, he was like telling the truth. Like he, he said it exactly as it read in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He quoted original script. Listen, church, it's written in a gospel. It's written in a book that we say is true. All these things, from the dates, from the point that they wrote on, from all the different manuscripts and the creeds, and how many copies of the manuscripts that we have, to the historical and archaeological evidence, all points back that the Scripture is God-breathed and true. If it wasn't, it would contradict itself all over the place, and it never does. It's just this incredibly true and correct document. Remember our, our focal passage, Matthew chapter 28. Let's read it again. Matthew 28 says this. On the Sabbath, the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. A violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Mark 16, 6, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Luke 24, 5, the angel speaking, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. John chapter 20 gives us this incredible detail of when John and Peter walk into the tomb and, and they, they kind of freak out because Jesus is not there and they look and John says that the cloth was folded up by itself. This is deliberate. This is intentional. Jesus was not shocked when he came back to life. He knew that he was going to do it. It was recorded for us in Scripture and we can believe it. So church, the four Gospels are telling the exact same story. He is not here. He has risen. Why would we not believe it? Why would we look at this book and go, I don't know? Why would we not look at all the evidence and go, it's written right here. It's true. And now I've got to live like it's true. Now I've got to live in this resurrection power that God's given us. See, here's the whole deal, and I'm going to close. We read through these accounts, and we get very, I told you it was going to be logical and intellectual. I told you. So if you didn't, if you didn't believe me, now you do. We read through all these accounts, and we can, we can put all this stuff together, and we can kind of line it all up. And then we've got something to do with that. I can get up here and I can give you fact after fact after fact after fact after fact and it doesn't mean anything unless you apply it. Hopefully you've learned a lot today. 
hopefully your note page is full and scribbled and you probably didn't get half of what I said because I said it probably too fast. Get this. The Gospels, written by unassuming men with an incredible message, prove themselves to be true time and time and time and time again. Archaeology supports it. Science supports it. History supports it. Non-biblical texts support it. And what we believe is a major element of faith, the spiritual element supports it. So I know we're just talking about the resurrection. I know that we're talking about Easter. But if we're going to broaden our context here, and say, if, if we can come back and we say, okay, this is true and this is correct, then everything else written in it is too as well. So when it talks about how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to treat each other, how we're supposed to love, all those things are true and correct as well. And we go, okay, well, I've got a, I've got a mountain of things to apply now. Yes, welcome to being a Christian. It's more than just going to church on Sundays. It's more than just praying at dinner and occasionally reading. This is, this is the very Word of God that has been written down and we have an incredible access to it. And most of the time, it sits on a shelf or sits on a table, gets carried out and dusted off every once in a while when it contains all knowledge and truth that we could ever need for life and living. Guys, I, I, I hope that I did justice this morning to, to, the, to the logical explanation of the Gospels. Listen, next week we're going to talk about Jesus and who he said he was and how all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. How no one else in history could fulfill the prophecies that he fulfilled. Hey, this is Matt Overall, the pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Just want to say thanks so much for watching our services, whether through our television ministry or our online ministry. We appreciate you so much being a part of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we'd love to have you come and join our worship service. Uh, Sunday morning service starts at 1030. Our small groups start at 930. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. We've got a lot of different ministries that happen at Emmanuel, from our children and youth that's focused on Wednesday nights to our uh, women's Bible studies that happen throughout the week. We'd love to have you be a part of everything that's going on here at Emmanuel. Thanks for watching.